You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. Hello, everyone. Thank you, and welcome to the fourth in our series of New Eat Talks. My name is Bridget McIntosh, and I'd like to welcome you to this event on behalf of the entire New Eat Blanche team. Today's discussion is entitled, When Curators Speak. I'd just like to take a moment to thank our presenting sponsor, Scotiabank, and extend a great thank you to our partner, the Art Gallery of Ontario, for uh, making this event possible today. I'll be introducing our moderator, Mr. David Liss, who will then be talking um, about uh, the curators and we'll be introducing them. Again, I'd just like to thank you again for joining us, and if we can just give a warm round of um, a warm welcome to our moderator, Mr. David Liss. A little bit about Mr. Liss, though. He's the artistic director and curator of the Museum of Contemporary Canadian Art in Toronto. He's been the curator since December 2000. From April 1995 until November 2000, he was the director and curator of the gallery of the Sadie Broffman Centre for the Arts in Montreal. Between 1994 and 1996, he was also a regular contributor to the Montreal Gazette. Again, a warm, warm welcome for our moderator, Mr. David List, and our panelists. Hey, great. Thanks a lot. Good evening, Toronto. <laughs> well, it's a nice, intimate crowd. That's fine. People can uh, feel free to, uh, to move up a little bit if you like. Um, yeah, thank you very much. And what I'll do, uh, we have um, uh, nine panelists, which, uh, which seems like quite a few um, for an hour, and they're all uh, very uh, experienced and chatty bunch, so I, I'm, I'll, I'll uh, introduce them one by one in alphabetical order, uh, but just to let you know, these little intros I'm providing are extremely abbreviated. These people have done a lot of stuff, and our first panelist is Fern Baer, independent curator, art historian, and archivist. Fern Bear is an independent researcher, curator, and activist. She, along with Piggy Gale and Christiane Stathakos, uh, formed the curatorial team for the Yorkville Zone for the 2006 inaugural Nuit Blanche and is organizing a small archival documentary exhibition of the first four years of Nuit Blanche in celebration of the event's fifth edition to be presented at Scotia Plaza. Yeah, yeah, so that's happening, uh, yes, from the 20th of September to October 3rd. She's also formerly chief curator of the Government Ontario Art Collection, and she has also acted as an international cultural promotion agent, primarily in the Pacific Rim, conceptualizing, organizing, fundraising, and delivering 19 large projects focusing on Canadian and other artists. Her current main project is the completion of the catalog resume of the body of work produced uh, by the former legendary Toronto artist collaborative General Idea for publication in 2011. Please welcome Fern Bear. <laughs> well, aren't you going to come up here? And, uh... Well, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, come on up, Fern. Well, no, one, isn't it one at a time? Or... Well, we're getting con yeah, somebody else gave us a conflicting instruction earlier, uh, later on. <laughs> So that's Fern, and uh, where is Clara Hargitay? There she is over there waving. There's Clara. Yay! Clara, Clara Hargitay is a Toronto-based independent curator and consultant. Since the early 1980s, she has held positions at the Art Gallery of Ontario, 
where in 1991 she was co-curator with Dr. Roald Nasgaard of the major exhibition Free Worlds, Metaphors and Realities in Contemporary Hungarian Art, and was artistic director of the Toronto-wide multidisciplinary arts festival Hungary Reborn. In 2003, she curated the exhibition that Political is Personal, a First Nations Perspective on behalf of the Royal Canadian Academy of Arts at the Lieutenant Governor's Suite in Queen's Park. She was curatorial director of Interactive 05 at the Toronto International Art Fair. And in 2006, she was curator of Zone C, located in the Queen West Art and Design District for the wildly successful inaugural Nova Scotia Bank Louis Blanche. Uh, where she commissioned eight major installations by international and Canadian artists, Clara Hargitay. <laughs> I should say now, though, she uh, currently works at the City of Toronto as a public art officer in cultural services. Next is Camilla Singh. There's Camilla Singh. Camilla Singh is an artist and curator who worked with the Museum of Contemporary Canadian Art, yay, from uh, 2002 <laughs> to 2009, first as uh, assistant director and curator and uh, lifesaver. <clears throat> uh, her curatorial uh, projects often feature live areas, uh, hosting performances, concerts and sites of change within the exhibition space. Singh is a co-founder of the New Remote Art Collective a group of artists who travel the world by invitation, producing spontaneous site-specific installations that are charged with the politics, cultural, and social convention of the sites in which they are produced. Camilla Singh. <laughs> Michelle Jakes. There's Michelle Jakes. <laughs> Associate Curator of Contemporary Art at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Well, thanks for having us over, Michelle. Anytime. Uh, Michelle Jakes is a curator and writer based in Toronto where she currently holds the position of Associate Curator Contemporary Art at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Her curatorial projects at the AGO have included Sarah Ann Johnson in 2009, Louis Jacob 2005 and 06, Jennifer Steinkamp in 2005, and present tense, Corey Newkirk. Uh, and also, Michelle uh, mentioned that she has an exhibition opening tonight. What a coincidence of the work of uh, Alan Mitch uh, Allison Mitchell uh, just uh, upstairs or across the way in the, uh, the Toronto Now series. Yeah. So she has launched the first of those projects at the AGO Toronto Now series, and she has one of those opening tonight. Her independent projects have included At the Centre of Time and Place for Nuit Blanche, Digitalized Inside the Electronic Dream, at Gallery TPW in 2000, and here, a group exhibition of local emerging artists at the Robert Birch Gallery. Recent writings include the Artist-Run Centre's Tactical Training Unit in Decenter Concerning Artist-Run Culture, published by YYZ Books, Some Thoughts on Speech Bubbles, in Pro Forma Language Text Art, edited by, edited by Jessica Wyman for YYZ Books and Art and Institutions, an interview with Jana Graham and Anthony Kendall, published in September. 2007 issue of Fuse Magazine, Michelle Jakes. Now we have Dave Diamond. Where's Dave? There's Dave, down at the end of the table there. Dave Diamond is an artist and curator living and working in Toronto. He's curated numerous exhibitions at YYZ, Art Metropole, and Mercer Union, where he was the director of programming and publications from 2004 to 2008. 
In 2008, he curated Zone C for Nuit Blanche, which featured works by Yoko Ono, Michel de Bruin, John Sasaski, and others. In 2009, he curated an independent project for Nuit Blanche on behalf of the Parkdale BIA. And this year, he is participating in Nuit Blanche as an artist. And he is, uh, as an artist, he's represented in Toronto by MKG 127 Gallery. Dave Diamond. Ahema Sibanison is the executive director of the South Asian Visual Arts Centre. There she is, sitting over there beside Dave. Um, her curatorial work focuses on art from South and Southeast Asia with an interest in relationships between contemporary and historical art forms. Hema's curatorial work is enriched by her various experiences of living, working and traveling in Asia. Hema was formerly the assistant curator of Asian art at the Art Gallery of uh, North uh, NSW in Sydney, Australia from 1996 to 2004. In 2006, she was a curator of a critically acclaimed exhibition of contemporary art from South Asia for the Commonwealth Games Cultural Festival in Melbourne. She was a zone curator for Nuit Blanche in 2008. And more recently, she was a curator of The Heart That Has No Love, Pain, Generosity Is Not a Heart by Jace Saloum and Kadim Ali, which was awarded the Images Prize at the 23rd Images Festival in 2010. Hema Sabanison. Now we have Jim Drobnik and Jennifer Fisher. There they are in the middle. And the reason those two are introduced together is because they form the curatorial collective known as Display Cult. And their exhibitions have been featured at museums, galleries, and artist-run centers in Canada and the U.S. and include Metrosonics in 2009, Odor Limits in 2008, Listening Awry 2007, Do Me in 2006, Oral Cultures 2005, Linda M. Montano, 14 Years of Living Art, Reminiscent 2003, and Vital Signs in 2000, and then uh, about another half page worth of uh, other uh, exhibitions and projects that <laughs> you guys have been involved in. Uh, Display Cult's projects aim to rethink exhibition prototypes by amplifying sensory aesthetics, interrogating the diverse histories of display, and engaging with the performative aspects of presentation. And you can uh, visit their website at displaycult.com. Uh, of course, independently, though, they have independent practices. Uh, Jim is a re uh, Jim's research centers on smell, sound, and vision. His books include the anthologies The Smell Culture Reader, 2006, and Oral Cultures, 2004. He has published in such journals as Angelique, High Performance, Parachute, Performance Research, and The Senses and Society, where he now uh, is a reviews editor. He's Associate Professor at the Ontario College of Art and Design, Jim Drobnik. And Jennifer Fisher is a Curator, Writer, Associate Professor of Contemporary Art and Curatorial Studies at York University. Jennifer Fisher's research focuses on exhibition practices and the aesthetics of the non-visual senses. She is a founding member of the Curatorial Collaborative Display Cult, as I've just mentioned. Uh, which were the commission curators of Zone B and Toronto's financial district for Nuit Blanche in 2009. Her writings have appeared in the anthologies The Senses in Performance, Oral Cultures, 
Caught in the Act, Food Culture, Naming a Practice, Curatorial Strategies for the Future, and such journals as Paradoxa, Public, Art Journal, and Visual Communication. And she's also the editor of Technologies of Intuition in 2006, Jennifer Fisher. And uh, last but not least, we have Tom Sokolowski, who is an artist and curator. Here's Tom, just to my right. And Tom has trained in New York City and Paris as an artist, producer, and curator. He co-founded the Theater Center and produced over 100 works in opera, theater, and dance, including Michael Nyman and band, the master musicians of Jijoka, worked with R. Murray Schaefer, and uh, created his own works and directed uh, site-specific opera and theater in Union Station, the Ontario Science Center, Hard House Swimming Pool, even. His work has been presented by the Holland Festival, Toronto World Stage, Strasbourg Musica, Musique en Seine Festival, the Huddersfield Festival, Opera de Lyon, the Canadian Opera Company, Opera de Montreal, and about another dozen or so things. And that was even before he left the performing arts to focus on large-scale public art installations. And among other things, he curated for the McLuhan International Festival of the Future, 2004 Toronto International Art Fair, and uh, Contact 2007. He then premiered Confinement of the Intellect at the inaugural edition of Nuit Blanche in 06. And then as the encampment in New York City in 2007 and in Ottawa in 2008. Last year he curated Zone A for Nuit Blanche. This year's studio, Thomas and uh, Guinevere will be presenting a new large-scale public participatory performance art installation entitled The River Peace commissioned by and presented into the distillery district as part of Scotiabank Nuit Blanche. Um, so there you have it, uh, in case there was any question of the uh, experience and caliber of the people that we have on our panel. Um, is, it, uh, is it four o'clock yet? <laughs> well, in any case, um, as I mentioned, there, there's quite a bit of experience here and and, uh, uh, and people with, I'm sure, a lot to uh, say and uh, some uh, thoughts they might provoke in the audience. You know, what we'll do is, uh, I guess we'll, we'll handle this kind of discussion style. You all, I'll, I'll uh, perhaps, uh, you know, mention an issue or a question and, and that may prompt a discussion amongst yourselves rather than just, you know, necessarily like a one-off. We want you all to interact and have a discussion. I mean, if all goes well, then I'll just, you know, see you at the end of the panel. <laughs> Uh, but if everything goes awry, I'll try and, uh, you know, make sure y'all are polite to each other and uh, sort it all out. And then we'll have an, uh, a half an hour of uh, questions uh, at the end uh, from the audience. Uh, if you don't mind, unless you're, you know, thusly inspired and need to interrupt. Uh, but the first uh, thing I'd like to throw out there is many of you may or may not be aware, Nuit Blanche, launched by Mayor David Miller at the Museum of Contemporary Canadian Art in 2006, uh, was intended as a one-off event, uh, part of Toronto's Live With Culture campaign. And to everyone's surprise, there was an estimated 500,000 uh, people that had turned out. Since then, uh, they say that uh, a million people come out to uh, Nuit Blanche uh, every year. Uh, and I, it's obviously an, an astonishing number for any type of event. Uh, but how do, uh, how do we account for that popularity? What do you all think? Why, why are so many people coming out to Nuit Blanche? Contemporary art's not exactly like, uh, you know, Britney Spears concert or whatever. 
I think one thing, um, I don't know if you can hear me. I think one thing that's really different about Nuit Blanche than a lot of um, contemporary art events is the amount of visibility in advance, the advertising and um, and just the profile. Things are given well in advance of the event happening. I don't think that's the only reason, but I do think it, it contributes and it's a little bit more like a sporting event where you, you certainly can't help but be aware of it. Another thing that's really interesting is that you have um, all the um, facilities of the city on side, so um, it's, you know, there are a lot of uh, marketing and um, publicity and, and the mass media gets involved and so there's a lot of coverage, a lot of events, a lot of support for it. I think one of the things was the first year there was, as you said, a lot of marketing, etc. But the people that came out in the pouring rain, it was thundering and lightning and rain on and off and everything, they were curious. And it was that kind of curiosity of uh, all swaths of society and ages that I think the buzzword kind of generated through to the next year, which helped to double the performance on the basis of just the spread of spread of word about what is this odd thing and it was so great. Well, as, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> as one of the curators of the first year um, event, um, to be quite honest, um, none of us knew how this is going to unfold. I remember sitting in that tent um, in Trinity Bellwood Park in the pouring rain around seven o'clock in the evening and thinking, well, six months of work has just gone down the tubes and it, that it would be rained out and nobody will come. And lo and behold, even in the pouring rain and by eight o'clock the streets began to fill up with people and people have been calling each other, you gotta come down, you gotta see this. I don't think anybody really expected, knew what to expect, but um, the um, atmosphere on the street was just absolutely remarkable. That was the most uh, um, fantastic experience for me to have strangers uh, just milling around in the streets, smiling and talking to each other with huge grin on their faces and just discovering contemporary art. I mean, that was fantastic. Sorry, Hammond, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think there's something very significant about bringing out art out onto the street and taking it out of the gallery space and thereby actually allowing people to see it in a different context and to engage with it in a very different way. And I think that has been a big mm -hmm. part of the success of Nuit Blanche. Um, mm -hmm. Just to, to add to that, I have no doubt that the, the marketing and great word of mouth is um, a huge aspect of the success of Nuit Blanche. But I think the fact that it's it's outside, that people don't have to cross a barrier, it's it's in their streets, is a huge um, um, contributing factor. As is the fact that it's free, as is the fact that it's um, a social experience to be shared with fellow citizens. And I think that um, you know those are three aspects that, since my time working on Nuit Blanche, I think about all of the time given that I work here at a place that we're constantly um, trying to attract larger audiences. Yeah, I think another angle is that um, for 364 days of the year, 
Toronto as a city is a very functional, uh, transport-oriented, business-oriented, uh, economic kind of entity. And uh, for one night, there's a sub somewhat subversive, um, carnivalesque element to this event uh, in which uh, Jennifer and I might say that the city becomes deterritorialized. It becomes uh, uh, other for uh, a brief moment of time, and people can experience the city in uh, imaginative, poetic, radical uh, states of matter. So essentially you're saying there, Jim, everyone likes a good party. <laughs> <laughs> Never underestimate the uh, popularity of a good party. But one, one thing that uh, uh, you made me think of, Clara, um, <clears throat> Um, and thus far in Nuit Blanche, uh, knock on wood, uh, the weather has been uh, cooperative. Uh, but sure enough, that's a lot of work. And if the weather, to, you know, weren't were kind of inclement, that would would have a different uh, give the evening a different complexion. But also, uh, I'm wondering that should should Nuit Blanche be just a one night event? Is that uh, I, I do get asked that question often myself. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of time and money that goes into that. Uh, is there, you know, should it be extended? Is there any way to extend that, or or we go with the one night party thing? I remember the first time Nuit Blanche was announced in uh, Toronto. I think it was at the Drake, and, and we had someone come over from Paris, and they took questions at the end. And most of the questions were artists putting their hands up, saying, "How can I get some of this money that you seem to have?" But one of the questions, which was really smart, was. What do you think the legacy of Nuit Blanche should be? What do you think the impact can be? You know, what, what, are, what can we expect in five years? And I, I sort of remember people at the panel just kind of shrugging their shoulders. And I thought, oh, come on. There's like, I can think of 10 things right now. And you know, one of them, for example, for me, I always thought, why isn't there a, a night of the month, let's say, like the first Wednesday of the month, the last Thursday of the month, in which all galleries are open till midnight, or open till 10 PM? Like, we're trying to compete with bar culture and cinema and sporting events and all things that people do after their work. And galleries tend to shutter their doors at you know, six o'clock. So that, that's one of the things that I, I don't think, I think Nuit Blanche functions because it's 12 hours. Like there's, there's been discussions about dragging it out to three days and, and that, that lets you access different funding models and so on. I think it's the 12 hours that is absolutely key. Mm -hmm. If, you, if you, yeah. you, you know had a preview on the night before, no one's gonna yeah. come. But I would like to see, you know, I'd like to see galleries, for example, stay open. Like, I, I'd like to see that notion. I tend to agree with you because um, I think uh, over the years, um, and I have been around long enough uh, in Toronto, there have been um, years when uh, galleries have been open um, uh, every Thursday or Friday, um, uh, late into the evening, and that was all over the city. And, uh, but it never lasted long enough. Um, it, um, it always fizzled out, I guess, uh, when the organizers who started it um, started to feel some fatigue about it, they, it just uh, disappears. Um, same thing happened with, um, uh, I'm wondering now what's going to happen with Culture Days, uh, now that uh, a new initiative is happening now which is national, so it's getting more attention on um, CBC, for example, where Nuit Blanche is hardly ever mentioned because it's a, a Toronto event. So perhaps it's not justified no matter how successful it gets and how many people uh, we actually draw out into the streets every year now. Um, so it is, um, 
interesting to think about um, the, um, the time confinement, but I think that's the magic of it in a way. I think curatorially the uh, durational aspect of it is an interesting challenge as well because it's actually meant that we've had to think about how we program in a very mm -hmm. different and interesting way and I think it allows us to do certain kinds of things, it allows us, affords us certain kinds of opportunities which you might not otherwise have. Um, can I throw a question out? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, perhaps related to that, though, I wonder how Nuit Blanche continues to reinvent itself um, year after year, and perhaps that's not unrelated to what the point that you're making. I think what's important about Nuit Blanche in, in terms of uh, a kind of future is that it uh, provide more... I mean, I remember that first year when we were, it was that insatiable curiosity of the public that was so exciting and capturing and all the artists that certainly we worked with, they were like, you know, they couldn't believe it in a sense. But I think there are certain missed opportunities where it's become very festival-like, which there's nothing wrong with that, but I think you have to, at a point, try and educate the non quote, experts and not speak to the people who might know. Um, and one thing is the, I guess the city presumes that everybody reads the event guide, but you have to go to the information center to get the event guide. And over the past years, there's absolutely no information about the artist except, you know, the artist lives in New York. And I think the public should be given that kind of food for thought of, and maybe one way is where they have the big signs. What made me think of this is last night I was walking by City Hall and they were putting up the banners of, you know, sight and who the artist is. But, you know, nothing. And I think it's sort of, as Michelle said, it's sort of like bringing art out of, this, out of the gallery and onto the street. Well, then in a sense, you should take some of the things that curators and galleries deal with, which is information, and put that out on the street so that people, when they're looking at something, could really understand it. Because I think of Mike Alexier tonight going to be performing the vexations. Like, how many people know what the vexations are and why Micah is particularly attracted to doing a, a, a piece like that is because his work is about measurement to a large extent. And I think there should be a place of putting that information out as an educational um, people can choose to read it or not read it, but I think this sort of dumbing down and just not saying anything about, you know, in depth needs to be addressed. And um, and I think in a way, it's it's how you build audiences as well, which is, you know, food for thought. I think um, just to comment on information, I do believe that I could be wrong, but over the years, I believe there's been more and more information. I think with the the epidemic of uh, social networking, uh, people are getting inf information faster than they can actually consume it. And uh, Nuit Blanche, I believe, is setting up night apps and things like that. And soon, I'm sure you'll be able to go to, I'm, I'm using QR codes this year. You'll go to somewhere and just zap a QR code and you'll have a beautiful photograph of David Liss and his background and everything he's done right and wrong in his life. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, I just wanted to bring it back maybe to, uh, as a curator, 
um, what it offered me. I just wanted to look at what Nuit Blanche offered me as a curator. It allowed me to work with artists that I've wanted to work with in a way that was very challenging. And uh, one of the things that became challenging is what the organization offers you as your playground, what it offers you as your canvas to play on changes very quickly. One day you can be working as a curator for two months on a project with an artist that it's going to happen in some place and then suddenly permissions haven't been gotten and you got the artist because of that particular site. So you're, it's, it's, as a curator it's very, very challenging how to work with an artist of stature and I think what we need to do is definitely get as many artists as we can in Rue Blanche uh, with stature so that th there are introductions to that. As an artist, that's another thing. I think, you know, it's interesting, the question of um, the temporality of the discourse around Rue Blanche, there's a lot of um, build-up, there's really great press in advance. Um, for us last year, the dailies were extraordinarily generous and we got you know, excellent reportage in the Star and the Globe and so forth. But um, there really isn't that much critical evaluation in the art press afterwards, and there also seems to be a, a little condescension towards Nuit Blanche generally because of its mass appeal. And having participated as a curator in the event, I, I just found it such an extraordinary opportunity to engage a mass art audience, which I think is a really new idea, to have like a million people out. And so what does this mean? And yet, um, you know, your identity as a curator is kind of blurred because the, there's a, um, uh, what is it, uh, when, you're, when you eat, omnivorousness, there's an omnivorousness, so that, you know, there's food concessions on Bay Street that people thought were pieces by artists when they're actually just, you know, food concessions, and, 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 <laughs> and there's uh, independent projects that you would never really, you know, curate yourself that people assume because they're in your zone that you had curated. And uh, there's a problem of getting this, uh, the, the uh, guide, you know, I think it should almost have been sort of handed out everywhere, wherever there was a piece. Um, but I think that um, to encourage some kind of digestion of Nuit Blanche, um, you know, in the sense of its art historical importance, I think this is sort of a concern of Fern. Um, I think that, you know, there, there is uh, the websites and the web and the possibility of having all that information, but um, a more focused review is something that, you know, we're not quite sure how to do yet and, and maybe more appropriate, I'm, I'm thinking that's more, maybe more appropriate in um, sort of uh, video documentation, like some kind of time-based, you know, documentary kind of experience so that you're in the space and you're moving through space. And you're in you, know, you have this sort of, at least this proprioceptive experience of moving through the crowds and having this in, these amazing um, atmosphere and mood and in, you know, intensity in the crowds. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we didn't buy a video camera uh, <laughs> for us. And we commissioned a videographer who, given the omnivorousness of the event, you know, missed three of the projects. And, and so we don't have something we can work with because we didn't have, you know, the opportunity to direct her, which would be you know, you would have to do, but you're so preoccupied with your 15 projects that we couldn't uh, do that. So I think, you know, it's personal, it's a personal uh, regret that we didn't really have better documentation and um, because it is such an extraordinary and exciting, you know, curatorial 
experience to participate yeah, in. I'd like to add to that because I agree, curatorial it was an extraordinary experience for me as well and I, I felt that it gave me an opportunity to work at a scope and a scale that I've never had before. But as a viewer, I, I actually find it a little bit troubling, like I don't quite know how to deal with it. And I think some of what you're saying is quite interesting because I think in the art context, there hasn't really been any sort of critical discussion around this idea of the spectacle and the carnivalesque of, you know, there's been so much discussion about Biennales, for example, and the Biennale syndrome and, and the scale and scope of that as a um, kind of t exhibition type or format. Um, and Nuit Blanche is something new in that sense, um, but this notion of the spectacle and how we might digest it, mm -hmm. to, to continue with that food metaphor, um, <laughs> is kind of interesting and I think hasn't, um, I think it's easy to dismiss it, mm -hmm. but it hasn't really um, been a, a deeper kind of well, well, how do you strike that balance then between, mm. uh, I guess, the discourse, uh, which of course we in the art world are familiar with, but uh, not necessarily the other million people uh, that come to see the show. So how, how do you balance that discourse with what is essentially a mass spectacle? Is, is there, uh, I don't know, if there, <laughs> is I, there I, I worry that, that people have come to expect too much of Nuit Blanche. Like they think that it has to be all things to all people. You know, like you have a friend that you might go out drinking with that you don't necessarily get intellectual stimulation from, so you go with someone else the next night. Like, I don't know, I don't think it needs to be everything. I think it could be improved, certainly, but I think of it almost as an introduction for a million people. And then it's up to galleries and other events to, 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 do, some of the, to do some of the education, to fill in the blanks mm -hmm. elsewhere. I don't think like a 12-hour event, despite its enormous budget, can be expected to, to fill in all of these blanks, like to, to fulfill all the needs that we're asking you to do. You know, I just, okay, sorry. I, I, I'm just, just a follow-up, because I think that it's impossible to contain it in the, the ways that people contain critical discourse and judge an event as like a uni, 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 unified sort of entity, and that the ways that work perhaps the best, and sometimes, you know, are the most judgmental, are, are the, the itinerary through, like people's experience and what they did and what their itinerary was that night. And one of the really great video, videographic coverage of our zone was this young girl, you know, she posted on Facebook and she was like, you know, had her camera, she's walking down Bay Street and it was like fabulous images and she's going, this is crap, that's crap, this is crap. And it's like, I was just going, oh, you know, if I just done this and had my own voiceover, you know, it would have been perfect. So, you know, it, but, but because it was part of an itinerary, it kind of worked because it's never going to be the same for every person. It's just too big. I don't know. So anyway, Clara. Well, I have been thinking about this a lot, and um, I, over the years, um, I came to the uh, conclusion that perhaps we are missing the opportunity with Nuit Blanche to um, have a conversation with Toronto. And this is something that um, could be done if we would approach um, Nuit Blanche one year as throwing out a thematic idea to which all the curators would be responding to. I think Toronto audiences and the Nuit Blanche audience, they are intelligent, they are inquisitive, they are totally in 
sync with their city, and this is just such an incredible time now for Toronto. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but 10 years ago there were no construction cranes in this city at all, and that lasted for almost a decade. And in 10 years, this is now the second largest city in North America where the, most of the high-rises are. So there, we have gone through an incredible catalytic uh, convulsion here in terms as a society. And I think that's worth to um, explore and perhaps throw it out thematically one year and just have everybody have a conversation about it. I'm, I'm on the, uh, or until tonight, I guess, I've been on the advisory committee for uh, since December 2007. And some of those points have been brought up. What is the model? And Dave is actually on the, uh, on the advisory committee as well. How could, should it be curated? Should it be one artistic director, which is like the Paris model and the Brussels model, or um, the current method, which is dividing up the city into three zones with three curators and coming up with three distinct um, exhibitions, as it were, rather than one thematic overview. So, um, um, but I guess the committee in that discourse, Dave, what do you think? Um, Claire's on the committee as well. Yeah, I am. Oh, but, yes. <laughs> but this is uh, something that also has evolved from my own take on um, the zone that when I was working on uh, Queen, Queen Street West, um, I remember when I walked the city, um, the first time, walked that zone where I was going to be working on, and I never noticed things that, I just saw suddenly everything in a different light. And then it also kind of hit me that, wait a minute, although I haven't lived around Queen Street West, it was Queen Street West where I arrived as an immigrant into Toronto in the 60s. So all of those things came flooding back and so it's suddenly become also personal, a personal history with um, the collective history and collective memory. And I think um, I have been thinking about this approach for a long time to think that uh, when you have uh, a challenging, broad idea um, that everybody can respond to and can have a conversation with, um, that could be very fascinating and can, could be very, very rewarding. Um, there was a, a major event happening in Amsterdam last year. Um, the, for a whole year, um, organizations in the city came together and worked around the um, legacy of um, Spinoza, 17th century philosopher. And for one year, they had this incredible um, responses from artists and art organizations uh, for a whole year um, to think of thinking about what that means for his ideas at that time. Um, what are the um, messages for today? And there are plenty. And um, why has uh, Dutch society evolved the way it had? And um, it was a very rich um, year-long program that I found just absolutely fascinating and, and uh, um, admirable. So, just. 
Well, as curators, what do you, um, you know, oftentimes, whether it's, a, I guess it's individual themes, are you all, you're all responsible to uh, come up with your own theme? Yeah. Um, and, and that takes some time and some research, but what, what do you expect that the audience gets from that? Uh, do the, you know, we're talking a little bit about this, you know, uh, I guess, didactic or pedagogical um, aspect of Nuit Blanche, but what do, you, uh, what do you expect as curators, the audience will take you know, away? It's um, really difficult to think about the audience because mm -hmm. I think there are multiple audiences yeah. Yeah. and people come to it from very different places and very different ways of engaging with the work that they see. And to a great extent, I think it also depends on what the work is. Um, you know, well, does that affect the kind of theme you might develop, or does that affect the type of work you would present? Is, does you know, it have an influence, I, um, the fact that there is this widespread audience? When I curated for Nuit Blanche, I was so new to Toronto, and I think I felt a great deal of pressure to have to respond to a Toronto context or a Toronto audience. But I in the end, I had to curate something for me, really. I was the audience. <laughs> what did I want to do? Well, I, um, the, I like I, the, um, the audiences. I'm not sure about what to do with the audiences or how to define the audiences, but what was fascinating is uh, watching the audiences and the different uh, works I curated. And, for example, maybe some of you went... The, in Massey Hall, we set up Gord Monaghan in this kind of restrung the Massey Hall inside and people were on the stage and we could only get so many people in and I believe the wait time was up to three hours. Mm -hmm. And people actually waited three hours to get in there and I just found that amazing. I mean, I, I used to do that for rock concerts, but I never thought I'd, someone mm -hmm. would wait three hours to go inside Massey Hall for a 15 minute exercise <coughs> in contemporary art. And then on the other hand, like, like um, Jennifer is saying, you know, people just would pass by and make fly judgments. There are judgments on the fly. And I think that's all important because the more that people are exposed, um, you know, you don't know something until you know what it is. And every year, if you come out for the first time in Nuit Blanche as the general public, you're going to understand that, okay, this is art, this is what I like, what I don't like, but I like it enough that I want to come back because there's a certain energy here that I like. And I think that's what draws people, goes back to the curiosity. It's energy that draws people to engage in something that is unknown because they can trust the energy that they're receiving. And I think what Nuit Blanche does, it emanates a very trusting energy to the general public, and that's why they come back for more. I think that... Um Tom raises um, another interest or important aspect of Nuit Blanche, which is that um, through, the, through the projects, we can create opportunities for artists to engage with locations in the city as well as engaging with art. And I think that's actually to go back to the very first question, um, part of the, the appeal of Nuit Blanche and why somebody would stand in line to get into, I don't know, um, uh, the Polish Legion was a location that I had used in 2007. You can go in there every Thursday night and have pierogies for dinner, but somehow it was more exciting to go in there um, on Nuit Blanche. Um, and uh, to kind of go back to Hema's point, I had um, the opposite uh, 
situation when, when I was curating. I did Zone B, which at the time was the area around the AGO, which was a location where I had, I had either lived or worked for two decades. Um, and I knew quite a bit about the history of the, the neighborhood. And I'm going to go off on a total tangent here. Um, I remember that one of the criticisms that I heard of about my curatorial project after the fact was that the artists that I had shown weren't um, high profile enough. But I had such a specific um, curatorial thesis, which was about the, the sort of changing demographic of this neighborhood, which had originally been, of course, Aboriginal land like every place else in Canada, then went through um, you know, the British, Eastern European, Chinese, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I had uh, selected artists who could engage with those very specific um, issues and histories. And um, I think audience-wise, that was successful. Um, people got into places like the First Baptist Church and, as I mentioned, the Polish Legion. But critically, it was apparently unsuccessful. So um, I think I've brought us back to this question of you know, how, how Nuit Blanche is positioned, who we're, who we're creating the project for, how do we um, integrate a desire for uh, kind of critical success with, with um, public success. And I just wondered if anybody had any, any thoughts about that. I wonder if I can add to that because I think Louis Blanchot, I guess in many instances, has read to me as a very local kind of conversation. There are so many very local artists and, and very local discussions that are going on within the projects that are being presented. Um, and I wonder what the scope is for a, a discussion between the local and the, and the global or the international. Um, and how, you know, because part of the... the um, objective of Nuit Blanche, um, I kind of supposed, um, was about making Toronto an international city and sort of, um, you know, putting it on, on the map in that way. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess I wonder if anyone has thoughts about that. Well, yeah, it seems like, you know, to sort of return to so this McLuhan-esque, you know, history in Toronto, um, if we consider it as a mass media audience or a mass audience for art, then um, it seems that, uh, you know, the response by the media has been very positive, but it's not the characteristic media uh, response which is sort of, oh, look at artists, aren't they kooky, you know, kind of containing it and judging it. Um, what happened in, in some of the pieces that we had uh, in the financial district, which was, became part of our thematic because we were located there at first, you know, a little bit, you know, uncertain how we'd proceed, but it became like a core aspect of what we were doing. And so, for example, in the uh, TSX, which is the stock exchange, um, we had a monopoly game with real money in Baxter's piece. Um, and the um, media were there and present and participating. And one of the um, um, an, uh, announcers, or you know, what, what do you call them? Uh, newscasters. Newscasters was playing the game and at the same time giving a weather report. You know, as she's shaking the dice and handling money and sort of saying, well, you know, it's going to be cold tonight and come down to Nuit Blanche. And, and it was like, 
I just saw it, to, you know, it was like a, an extraordinary epiphany for me to see the media participate in a rigorously conceptually, you know, resolved piece and participate with respect and understand what was going on without feeling they had to judge it in a kind of containing way. And so, I mean, that was an exciting moment. It marked sort of an exciting beginning for stuff to happen on that mass level and for art to kind of finally come into, you know, the mass uh, media as a participant, rather than sort of the suspicious, you know, suspicious, suspect outsider that it's been for such a long time. Like, look at artists, aren't they weird, crazy? Oh, they've de they're dead, and it's, oh, it's worth so much money. Uh, you know, so uh, yeah, I think there's some really, something very powerful and interesting happening. I think, um, I think, I think every, every person out there is capable of having an epiphany and to think art is really, um, it's a real passageway sometimes for that to happen. And so, you know, I'm of two minds, like I do sort of agree that Nuit Blanchement can't be all things to all people and it alienates, you know, there's some people who are sort of alienated or feel, um, feel on the outside of coming into a place like the AGO, for example, or and then this this is a way of opening the doors. And there are a lot of people. There's a contingent of people who, who who don't like the art experience, who are more art initiated. Um, that Nuit Blanche provides, and and I think that's okay too. But um, sort of to get to the question of um, information and what what should be available to the public. Like I I, th I do think that um, in some cases that can be helpful. Uh, or, or something to consider, but I do think new strategies or different strategies for how to um, engage with your surroundings is, is something that um, Nuit Blanche is sort of ripe for. And, and the fact that the art, that art can really speak to people without mediation um, is enhanced by it being in, in the streets. So um, like Dave had asked us to send him some ideas, you know, before the panel about what what we might want to talk about, and I love, I love that you know the streets really become this place where I can go buy groceries, or I can, or I can have this access point to a sort of metaphysical experience, or I can, um, you know, probably not just ignore it. I can stay home and watch CSI, as we were joking. Like, you know, <laughs> the only way really is to like try to block it out. You can't just not see it. Um, so I guess what I'm sort of getting at too is like the power of art and artists to communicate without mediation sometimes and and some opportunities may be lost but I think honestly like by by letting some things happen it's only five years um, without the usual or the more conventional art strategies uh, surrounding getting the information out there could be an interesting thing to then sort of take stock of and and have some combination or or even work with artists instead of um, I mean Curators work like artists too. I mean, it depends, but but just to you, you know, maybe to work with the artists in those strategies um, for for messaging surrounding the piece or contextualizing something where where people feel it's necessary. Um, I think what what um, I was trying to uh, um, convey um, that what Nuit Blanche has is allowing and, and working in the city and uh, in the public realm um, is to um, bring forward and make visible the invisible. Um, in the West Queen West zone, 
um, I was very much aware that um, the mental health facility has had an incredible impact on that neighborhood and how that neighborhood developed and even today um, is affected by the presence of that institution. Um, that the, um, and then um, I thought that uh, to communicate that complex 150 year history in some way, we needed something very dramatic or, or very um, uh, visible and, and, um, and ingeniously somehow communicated. So I thought about uh, Tom um, Sokolowski, um, a colleague and, and now curator um, as well. And um, I thought of him that he would be able to help me to produce something that would communicate that incredible history. And then uh, we went to CAMH um, and had a number of meetings with them. And we experienced such incredible hostility towards our project that was absolutely shocking. And um, I don't know what they were afraid of, but we might be able to uncover through our research and um, worried about um, controversy uh, around the event. But at the end, we didn't get to do our project on the grounds of Kamage. Which was probably a Which good thing. Which was wonderful. <laughs> it, in the end. Right? At in the, the end. end. Yeah. Because um, having those 62 tents filled with stories of memories of patients past um, uh, from uh, all uh, brought uh, um, to forth from a, a book that was actually written by a mental health patient who is now a professor at York University. That was just uh, um, a wonderful. And of course, uh, it needed the artistic um, vision of somebody like Tom who um, thought about the tents. And um, we put it in Trinity Bellwoods Park. And even the uh, rain and the mist had helped in the experience of it. But um, again, it was um, an incredible collective uh, evolving uh, vision for that uh, need to make something visible that was there, but people who even live in the neighborhood don't really uh, know the full history of. So these are the experiences that uh, Nuit Blanche can provide which are absolutely invaluable. Well, well speaking of those experiences, um, maybe before we get to the qu uh, some questions from the audience, I'm going to put you all on the spot here maybe. <laughs> um, and I'd like to ask one by one, perhaps starting with Dave over there, yeah, of course. You. I know, you didn't want to sit down there at the end, did you? Um, but uh, what has been your most memorable experience of Nuit Blanche as a curator, an artist, or a spectator, related to the art or not? <laughs> okay, I'm gonna refuse to answer most memorable. The thing that, that, that when I really felt like it was gelling, uh, some of the uh, 
people organizing the launch approached me in the first year and asked me to apply. It was, I was getting married that year. It was like a really busy time. And I just thought, no one's going to care about this at all. Like, no one comes into galleries at 2 in the afternoon on a Saturday. Why are they going to come at 4 a.m.? Uh, so I just, you know, I wrote the whole thing off as, as junk, didn't care, didn't apply. I was working at Mercer Union at the time, and we agreed to stay open. I got a couple of volunteers to help me, but essentially I just thought, I, even this, I can't, like, can't bring in volunteers who were not paying, have them sit the gallery, and no one will walk in the door. This was literally my fear. I thought nobody <coughs> was going to come at all. Our show had been up for three weeks. Um, and so we just set up like a little table, had a couple of bottles of wine for ourselves, and we thought if someone comes in, we'll serve them a glass of wine. <laughs> there was never a time in those 12 hours, up until maybe 6.15, when there wasn't always somebody in the gallery. Like as somebody left, someone else came in. Never an empty gallery for 12 hours. And the show was, all, maybe we did like a small project, but I don't think we really went all out. Uh, and just like people would sit down, have a drink with us, and tell us uh, the amazing things they saw. And, or, you know, people would people ask me, I'd worked there for three or four years before that, no one had ever asked me this question was, is it okay if I take a photo of myself next to the art? <laughs> I just, like, no one's ever asked me that before. And these, you know, and maybe it's early days of Facebook or whatever, you know, like you take your camera out to prove where you were, but still, people wanted to prove in the middle of the night they were next to a paper installation by Kate Terry or whoever it was at the time. And uh, so that was just sort of shocking to see that there was this, that, that it could reach these sort of, the, the larger audience, uh, half a million then. Um, and even that, we were, I think Hema mentioned Biennales. I remember the year that I did Nuit Blanche. Um, I can't remember if it was Venice or Documenta, but one of the two biggest art events in the world announced record numbers that year. And over the six months that they were opened, 750,000 people came. And they were, you know, and we're talking like a hundred year history. That was their record number. And Nuit Blanche got that in 12 hours. That's yet amazing. gets no coverage internationally ever. Like all those sort of things are, are pretty interesting to me. But mm. yeah, just seeing the enthusiasm or, you know, my, my partner came back and she said she was out with some friends and they ducked into a bar to get a drink at like two in the morning or something. And she was quite happy to relax and have a drink. And they said, and these are non-art friends. But they pulled her away and said, no, 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 come on, there's more art to see. Emma? <laughs> yeah, I agree with Dave. I, I have to say the curatorial experience for me was quite astounding. I, um, yeah, it was phenomenal. It was sort of much more than I expected. But there was also, at some point there, a realisation that we were actually curating a special event and that there was a kind of mode of production which... Um, was very different to anything else I'd really worked on. But um, we did a SAVAC program last year for Nuit Blanche, and I think that gave me, because it was much more contained, that gave me a sense of the sheer numbers of people, as you were saying. There was never a moment <laughs> when it was quiet. There were just thousands of people um, engaging with stuff that, which I thought was pretty difficult actually, but really engaged, um, and that's pretty extraordinary. Mm. Camilla? I actually, I mean, I feel very similarly in terms of what the real, the biggest impact has been those numbers, but, you know, just to offer something different um, then is, is to say, you know, like, as, as um, I guess as a, as a, as an environment to, to view art in the, you know, the, the, 
part of the effect of the large numbers of dedicated viewers um, for whatever it is they're dedicated to, different things in different in different moments of the evening. Um, it's it's so messy and dirty and pushing and shoving and and waiting, you know, patience and quietness and you know, like all these different things. And then you know how it, just how it disappears. It really really does every time transform my vision of the city of the same streets I walk all the time and the you know being invited to, to curate and, and looking at things in a different way um, that that was a that you know I would just go in before I think maybe before when, when we'd been invited to put um, proposals in and before I'd uh, we'd been assigned certain zones you know just going and sitting in a place I am all the time, but stopping and envisioning something gigantic there. You know, I n I've never stopped doing that, you know, since the invitation <laughs> to, and so the ability to actually um, carry that out. And, you know, then it was followed, I have to say, in, in certain locations, like there's, a, there's an old police station that I used for one site um, for an audio installation. And I always feel sad when I pass it because mm. I just, I absolutely loved the, the installation and, um, can never see it again. It was just so short, and it's you, you know you have a lot of commitments, I guess, on the night of of um, curating, giving tours, and whatever else. And so I think I could only spend about 20 minutes there anyway. But it's so it's that sort of permanent um, uh, shift in the way that I look, not only at the city, but in the way that I can see art and how all that messiness and and that the, the framework of the whole event really underscores the impermanence of things. It'll, it'll just be gone. Yeah. Like magic. Yeah. Claire? The, um, as uh, all of you have said, the uh, experience of working and um, on the street and finding interesting locations, I was very lucky um, to have um, interesting spaces on my um, uh, block. Um, four bay car washes, for example, that I was able to turn into video theaters, or another car wash that uh, was perfect for another piece of artwork, etc., or the wonderful uh, billboards uh, that um, First Nations artist Edgar Hipperbirds uh, from Oklahoma uh, uh, did. I very much wanted to um, give First Nations artists the presence there as well, very consciously. And then you um, uh, walk through the streets and over six months while you're preparing and doing all that work and putting your program together, uh, working with the artists, you hope that um, whatever you uh, try to achieve and whether you, your, your hopes of communicating will actually work, um, but you really can't tell until the very last moment or um, <coughs> Even then, um, because the production is so um, amazingly fluid, and um, the, you have to also uh, say a few words about the incredible special events production team that we are working with, that um, without them, uh, none of this would be possible. Um, but one uh, moment has um, is stood out for me um, when I felt that um, actually people get it and, and what I have tried to communicate actually is happening was when um, I was sitting in that very um, sparse looking, uh, I was standing around really, uh, uh, sparse looking car wash, um, no extra lighting, nothing, and 
with Rebecca Belmore's incredibly uh, moving and uh, brilliantly conceived work of an ice piece that um, was put together from uh, 13 letters of blocks uh, spelling out the name of um, Neil Stonechild, uh, the Aboriginal teenager who froze to death in um, um, Saskatoon or uh, Saskatchewan somewhere. And um, the, it worked, it looked um, like a sarcophagus. It was just incredible. And people came in and perhaps reading um, uh, a small little text that alluded to uh, that uh, event, um, they came in and stood around so reverentially and were touching the, the eyes. That was just so amazing that um, that was the moment that stayed with me and that's when I thought that whatever I tried to do actually did work and um, people get it. Jim, how about you? Come on, how about like some crazy drunk people? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I was going to mention a riot, a near riot. Yeah. So, uh, well, most memorable for me, besides the extraordinary effort of the artists who participated and uh, and and uh, brought their works to uh, such a context, and and of course the staff at the city, <clears throat> I think what was most um, memorable for me was just the the protean and plastic nature of the audience. Um, you cannot typify the audience in any one particular um, uh, monological way. <clears throat> Partly, you know, when um, there were meditative sections, uh, the artist, the uh, audience was meditative. Um, they, uh, when there were more poetic things, they were uh, completely assimilative of that. <clears throat> um, when there were active and, uh, and participatory uh, elements, they were completely animated and so game and gung ho. Uh, and then also pretty unpredictable and chaotic. Uh, at uh, one of our uh, installations, Dam House News Vodka Pool, uh, just the uh, the scent of vodka, or just the name, <laughs> just to knowing that it's there, uh, caused a near riot and uh, destroyed the sign in front of CIBC as well as the revolving doors. Um, <laughs> But then again, you know, in, in pieces... It had to be closed down. It had to be closed I saw two guys body slide through that. Just to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they off their shirts and they were like... <sighs> yeah, I think it had happened more than once because of the way the staff responded. Oh, yeah, it's like, ho-hum, yeah, we see. Like, Show us right, something we haven't seen before. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, just the protean nature of the audience and how um, the Toronto audience here has been so game and uh, <clears throat> animated in, in light of... Uh, such works. I know we're two for one, two-headed, uh, one entity. Well, so I'll, yeah, try, I'll try to. I'll try to. Memory be, then. Yeah, I'll be brief. Um, but as an, an educator, uh, the first year of Nuit Blanche, I think 80% of my students want to do their final papers on Nuit Blanche, <laughs> and that was just amazing because you know there was extraordinary enthusiasm. This is from kids from the 905 as well as downtown, so, uh, and the university students. Um, the moment for me that sticks in my mind is uh, walking, like just the night, just as the full moon was coming up, and uh, Jim and I were walking along, um, the, I think it's Adelaide Street from the TSX towards Bay Street, and we're just walking along, and all of a sudden we heard 
the, the people on the ride by uh, Shauna Dempsey and Lori Milan screaming their heads off on, on Bay Street. And it was just the wild ride piece. And it was just like, this is happening, you know? It's really happening. And the simultaneity of all these extraordinary artists and the production team that really put their hearts and souls into getting us the CN Tower, the TSX, the banks, you know, Bay Street itself, we could never have done this without them. So. Um, we saw them as collaborators. It was just great. So that was the moment. Yeah. Michelle? Well, um, you said memorable, and memorable isn't necessarily a positive thing. No, not necessarily, <laughs> no. Um, and so I'll try and, I'll try and put a positive spin on this, though. Um, I, I worked with an artist named McKendry Key, uh, who was an artist from New York, and um, her, the project that she had planned on doing fell through at the last minute. We were to work in a public pool, and that couldn't happen. And I was so desperate to have something for her to do before the um, brochure went to print that I said yes to the next thing that she proposed, which was moving the entire contents of my apartment onto um, the street. Um, you know, it was a street, so nobody could say no, and um, it was my stuff, so it was within my control. So I said yes, and over the course of the evening, um, the Nuit Blanche audience took the objects from my apartment piece by piece and then reconstructed my apartment on Beverly Street. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, at first I was there, like, hovering over everybody, and then I just had to leave because everybody was reading my letters and looking at my underwear. <laughs> and McKendry told me that at one point after I had left, she heard a woman, um, behind her saying, I can't believe that Michelle let, let McKendry do this. She's so private. I've never even been to her apartment. And <laughs> McKendry turned around and said to the woman, oh, do you know her? And she said, yes, I'm her mother. But, um, but the positive spin on this story is that when I finally got all of my things back home, I had had a, like a memo block on my desk. And when I opened that up a few days later, people had used it as like an impromptu guest book and had left notes for me. And the notes were so sort of overwhelmingly touching. Um, you know, nobody was disrespectful about what they had read in my letters. Um, <laughs> and you know, I still have all of those notes as as um, a memento of what that strange gesture that McKendry came up with meant to the Toronto public. And. Um, to kind of spin this into a little memorable moment from another year, um, I was walking uh, a curator from um, London, I was with Gillian, my colleague, through Nuit Blanche, I think it was the next year, we were in Hema and Dave's um, zone in the distillery, and this curator, Gus Casely Hayford, um, had worked at the Arts Council in England. He had done audience development for the Tate Museums. 
in 2005, he had organized a huge uh, citywide festival in London called um, Africa 05. Um, you know, very interested in bringing art to the, to the larger public. And he just kept walking around the distillery and he could um, barely stop to look at the art because he just kept looking at the people and he said, this is amazing. I've never seen an art audience that actually reflects the exact demographic of the city. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, you know, like that's where the, that's where the critical significance of yeah. this, mm -hmm. this project yeah. lies. <coughs> Thanks, Fern. Um, I guess I was part of the uh, curatorial team uh, with Peggy Gale and Chris Anstathikos for the inaugural year, the first year. And um, it was kind of an odd, I mean, it was fantastic. What I wanted to say was, um, the one thing I remember is the city people, and I like to say that Jen Goodwin is here, who's one of the people, the first people who brought Nuit Blanche to Toronto, and um, she was away last year on maternity leave and is now back, which is great. And Jen's one big th thing that she said, you guys, when we were putting together idea, you know, our ideas, uh, she said, be sure and think big. And every, every day it was think big, think big, <laughs> instead of uh, that there were possibilities to do fantastic projects if we wanted. And of course, everybody's brought up the enormous uh, support and excellent support team of, of the production people of the city. Um, and I guess one of the most memorable things for me personally was uh, to work and bring to Toronto uh, Fujiko Nakaya, who did the fog installation at Philosopher's Walk. I'd known her for many years from Tokyo days, um, never having had an opportunity to actually work with her. And Peggy actually had met her too because she was a big, she's very involved in the video art scene. And um, we weren't sure if something like this would be possible because it was an enormous production job. Um, and the city people said, yes, yes, yes. So we called up Fujiko and said, what do you think, <laughs> would you like to do a fog installation in Toronto? And she's 75 at that time. And uh, she said, oh yes, this would be fabulous. So it was an amazing experience to be able to bring an artist and work with an artist um, um, w doing a special project at a very specific site in Toronto, which was, um, she had been given history. We chose Philosopher's Walk because of uh, the Tattle Creek underneath and the references to water. Um, so it was, uh, it was pretty great. And also we kept eyeing, when we were looking for sites, eyeing the planetarium dome and said, oh my god, you know, it's not possible. We can't do anything with that. And one of the production people at the city, Allison, said, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. And sure enough, um, we were able to, I mean, we had in, in mind, I had in mind this piece by Michael Snow of counting sh uh, um, sleep loop, a sheep loop that he had done uh, at the Whitney, and um, whether the artist would be interested in reformatting that work for the dome. And uh, there were two magical, I mean, we had 10 projects um, to do, but uh, th those were the two magical things. And without the tremendous production support, and even the encouragement of think big, 
uh, we would never have done it. So, anyways, thank you, yeah. Jen. <laughs> Thanks, Fern. Tom, it's got to be a good one. You're the last one here. Uh, for me, the one of the most memorable moments was um, last year, and it was, I think, around 6.30 in the morning, and uh, going down and having breakfast at Oddfellows. That was my most memorable moment of the evening because I was really tired and I needed a bit of my own experiential art activity, which I love food, and I got this amazing breakfast in this pot. And it was probably one of the best breakfasts I've ever had. And I'll always remember it in this big pot, and I was completely nourished and went home and slept until Monday night. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks a lot. Now we've got, uh, that's actually sounding pretty good right about now. We've got a couple of uh, microphones available here. So everything you always wanted to ask about Nuit Blanche, now's your chance. Yes, sir, over there in the, uh, probably don't need a, a microphone, second, do you, Mike? Are you sure? <laughs> Speak loudly, everyone can hear He's you. He's got a foghorn, let's go. Foghorn. You know, uh, one of the, a couple of words have come up quite a bit, spectacle, and party and um, this year it's becoming more spectacle and party than it has in the past with um, City Hall being run now by a pop star Daniel Lanois rather than a visual artist um, and Young Street gonna be littered with tiny tiny Tom donut trucks as they wrote in the star the other day um, the night is based on a certain level of spectacle it's huge big enormous how does that help the gallery system and our art system within Toronto when it breeds or lends this idea of spectacle that can never ever be met by the gallery system outside of that one night? And that Nuit Blanche itself has dedicated the gallery districts of the city of Toronto to be seven populous areas like Young Street and Bay Street where the gallery system doesn't exist. So I'm, I'm a fan of Nuit Blanche, I believe in Nuit Blanche, but I don't see Nuit Blanche as helping the art system in general because it doesn't support them because it, it's too large. It's so big that the MOCA, the AGO, the Angel Gallery, all the gallery systems that, that would benefit from this event can't. I think because it lends an expectation that can never be met on that same level next day. I think one of the things that, that maybe does lend in terms of the, the gallery system or, or the, the art world that continues the other days of the year, the rest of the days of the year, is, is that it allows um, artists to do projects that they wouldn't be able to do in the gallery system. Just, just one simple comment about that. Yeah, I think it absolutely gives artists a profile in a way that they might not otherwise have. I remember working with Brendan Fernandez, who is a very young artist uh, and just beginning to uh, be known around town. And I think the project that he did really uh, captured a lot of people's imagination and gave him um, certainly. Um, yeah. But Hema, one thing reading uh, Brendan's website, uh, he talked quite a lot about, was it the website or it was an in interview, about how that piece, he was so disappointed with it. You know um, that he put so much into it, and it was such a marvelous piece. We all agree, 
And then he said it was so dis he was so distressed when he came back the next morning to the parking lot and to see it evaporated. Absolutely mm -hmm. not a trace. And he's quite poetic the way he describes that experience. I think experience that's the poignant experience, yeah. though, isn't it, um, for many artists? It well, kind of, it yeah. kind of uh, sums up in uh, some poetic, or if not, in, in you know, in a direct way, what uh, what Mike is saying that this circus uh, pulls into town and then it pulls out of town, uh, not to leave much of a trace or scrap for the other people toiling in the trenches the other 364 days a year. It's a tough, critical question. The, the, uh, just, just to throw something in, um, as an artist outside of the gallery system, uh, probably Nuit Blanche has had everything to do with me accelerating my so-called career as a temporal work artist, however you want to describe that. The, when I did the work in 2006, uh, we felt good enough about it that we took it to New York City where it became kind of this odd little hit in the middle of the East River. And then we took it again to Ottawa. And now we have a new piece that we're doing, which has hence been invited to the, uh, what's it called, the Times Square Alliance Public Art Program, based on the fact that it's almost, in the theater world, you would do a workshop. And then you would do the main production. So it's, it's for some people who do the kind of work like large scale, public, you know, whatever, that stuff, it's, it's a really great environment to test things and to see if things will work. And then if you're lucky enough and you're building your relationships, um, it can go on beyond that. So for me, um, and for those who create work in this manner, outdoors, outside of the gallery scene, not that I wouldn't want to do something in a gallery, it's just, it's a great opportunity for people to see that and take it somewhere else. For, so for an artist, I think it's a really great environment. I also just want to add, like, I, I do think that for anyone involved, and it's changing, you know, as, as, the years, as the years go on and there's more lead time and bigger budgets and more to be anticipated in a way, but um, that, it, that it is extraordinarily taxing. And um, we had a word at MoCA. We, came up with called PELS, post-event letdown syndrome, where <laughs> like, a, like a lock that has to fill you know, the water levels and then you can proceed again. I mean, that, that really, like, there, it's, there, it's, it's too bad Swintech isn't here because I think she has some really um, interesting thoughts on, 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 on this question, well, or particularly from the point of view of the experience of the artist. I don't know, if, Michelle, if you can relay any of that or want to, but. I just I do remember her, you know, talking a little bit about, you know, the the um, that it is this great opportunity at the same time, you know, you're really left emptied out and dried up. Well, it's a it's a question too, maybe more for uh, you know the organizers of, of of the event itself, but I think it's a great question for all of us. Uh, uh, to consider. Uh, certainly Nuit Blanche does, uh, I know in my own uh, fundraising efforts, uh, it certainly uh, takes up a lot of oxygen. Uh, is there another question? Maybe I can say something, David, over here, oh, being yes, one I'm of the sorry, organizers. Jen, how are you doing? Hi, over here. Um, just to speak to that a little bit, because, yeah, definitely being on the inside of Nuit Blanche, we grapple with so many issues. It's a, it's a beautiful beast as we sort of call it from the inside a little bit. Um, part of what a, one of our mandates has been that we move areas every two years. Um, and we started very much in the gallery districts. And 
uh, it was challenging to decide to move out of that, but we also wanted to, um, we were hearing a lot from the public as well, why are you only in Queen West? What about East? What about North? What about South? Of course, we get so much information and feedback from everywhere in Toronto. Um, but even before hearing that, part of it was also to um, bring attention to not only the galleries, but the, the, the alleys, the back streets, the architecture of Toronto. Galleries is definitely one major part of it, but the, but the hidden parts of Toronto are as well. Um, and we definitely hear mixed feedback from some people, some of the galleries and institutions who say, we love the night, it takes a lot of staff, it takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of money, but people do come back. Other people say, it's not my thing, I'm out. We're not opening our doors. And we, and we don't, of course, um, a lot of people don't. You know, we haven't been involved yet, like say with the power plant. We're knocking on their door every year. It's not their thing. And we really wish it was. We're you know, frothing at the mouth for a partnership with them, but it's not, uh, it's not in their, up their alley at this point. So that's what, just to say one of our mandates is, so even like Young Street, it's true, it's, it's an ex uh, you know, it'll be an experiment this year to see how that works. And part of it is also we grapple with how do we move a million people around the city? How do we deal with these people's safety? Absolutely. Yeah. But it's true, it can't be only it. The art has to continually come first. So we do constantly to have those discussions internally about you know, the safety, the marketing, the politics, everything. But also we're constantly going, you know, art event, art event, art event, because there's a lot of different things at play internally. But so absolutely, like I'm taking little notes on my Blackberry every time I'm out, because I bring it back and we talk about it a lot. Um, internally, yes, and they are. They, the, we always make sure the zones that we have, you know, Queen Queen West and um, the Distillery District and the Witchwood Barn still exist, even though we're not putting our projects there. Um, so they are. Ev everyone continually, not everyone, but many projects still continue to be a part of Nuit Blanche, but obviously at their choice and their discretion. But. Was yeah, there I another question? Yeah. Yeah, Daniel Lenoir, he needs he needed the big budget there. Yeah. <laughs> De, Dimitri, did, uh, did you have a question? Not really. Oh, an answer perhaps. <laughs> I just wanted an to observation. Yeah, just an observation that um, the galleries. I, I work with the Ontario Association of Art Galleries, and we're very interested in the expanding audiences for art galleries. And it's a sort of a prior to Nuit Blanche, there was an assumption that art gallery audiences were declining, which we knew not to be the case. We know that gallery audiences in Ontario have doubled um, every 10 years, and we can measure them from 1993 to 2003 and so on. But Nuit Blanche, I think as Clara was saying, and, and others have mentioned that very first year I was just in the audience, but our member galleries were participating, and one example was a friend of mine had a project happening at the Garden Museum, and they're set up to basically handle the attendance of, you know, it's a long-term project, 50 people an hour. And they had 1,000 people in the first hour. And it's very difficult to have artwork that can withstand the public audience of 1,000 people an hour on the building. I mean, David, you can attest to this with the Hoffa's exhibition at, at MOCA. Um, the gallery itself physically can't support the traffic of a million people. So it's there's a judicious response on the part of the gallery. The second point I wanted to make was, we've had $20 million come into the Ontario Arts Council, more money added into the Trillium Foundation, and we just had $27 million come into the Ontario Arts Council on a pro for a, a new investment fund. We had money added into the budget of the Art Gallery of Ontario. Um, yes, we have a friendly government. 
both um, municipally and provincially, but it was the demonstration that there was a half a million people that very first year interested in contemporary art that shocked us. We didn't even, we'd never seen all our audience together in the same place. We're used to it being dispersed over time. And it has definitely added money into the um, economy of the public art gallery system. Um, so I just, you know, I tried to res reset that assumption. Um, and it was only Nuit Blanche that really physically materialized this interest in what used to be, we used to think was the hardest sell, conceptual art or contemporary art. And it's obviously not. The work that the Ontario Arts Council and the Canada Council has been doing and the work that the galleries have been doing in the last 50 years, it's definitely paid off with this audience. And, you know, Fern, what you're talking about too, um, they are getting information because they're on their Blackberries or their phones and they're Googling every artist, they're Googling every word that they don't get, and they're informing themselves as they go. They're their own encyclopedias. So um, I just wanted to add that. Demetra, do you have any um, <coughs> statistics or any information on whether it also has been attracting private money uh, into the public gallery system? Um, I don't. There is another organization called Business in the Arts. And I think if, if you look to those of you who work with public art galleries, and as David was mentioning, um, you know, it's yeah. the testimony of the curators and the directors and the galleries and the moment of Nuit Blanche. I doubt that we would have had Luminato without the positive experience of Nuit Blanche. Um, I, I doubt that there would have been that much confidence in this uh, expression of the arts and the economy. Well, don't get me started on Luminato. Uh, another question at the back? Yeah. Sorry, I just would like oh, to I'm respond. Sorry. Excuse me. I just would like to respond to uh, uh, Dimitra um, and also in a way to the other question um, as well. I think um, it is very, very important to keep the visual art integrity of Nuit Blanche. I have been talking about this uh, for five years. Um, as uh, much I love modern dance or uh, rock and roll, music, spectacle, I think this is the night of the visual arts and it should be kept that way. I, I disagree, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to wrap it up. It's 4.30 if anyone has parking or any of those things on hand. Here you are. And we have a couple of panelists that have projects uh, as well. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.